Much like a large piece of fruit spiraling down a hill at a speed high enough to literally murder two adult women, Manuary rolls on this week. As is probably already painfully clear from that opening joke, and yes, I'm very proud of it, I may not get it a few days ago, this is a Patreon member, you're eligible for tons of rewards. A monthly newsletter, bonus episodes, on-demand book recommendations, input on book selections for upcoming episodes, tote bags, and more, in return for just a few dollars a month. And if you're interested in grabbing an awesome SSR tote bag without joining our Patreon community, no worries, because our shop is now officially live too. Visit www.ssrpodcast.com shop to grab a tote bag of your very own. It's the perfect size to carry all of your books and other important things. But let's be honest, your books are the most important. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SSRPod and find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. If you love the show, please also take a moment, and that's really all it takes, to leave a review on iTunes. I appreciate every last one. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkasik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Chris. Welcome to SSR. Hi, how are you? I'm great. I'm super psyched to have you on the show. You are a fan and a male fan, which to be honest, like, I don't know how many of those we have other than like maybe my husband and my dad and you. I love it. The show is great. I'm a huge fan. Everyone should listen. I think you guys have really great conversations all the time and you're so smart and like you're really good. So I'm excited to be here and excited to talk about James and Giant Peach, which is so weird, and <laughs> just like kind of like really uh, happy with it. So <laughs> so weird. Well, we were emailing yesterday, and Chris was like, "This book is really weird, right?" And I was like, "Yes," which means we are going to have the best ever conversation about it. Yes. So first, I have to ask you, like, why did you pick this book? Had you read it before? Was there like a special calling in your heart to revisit it? Why was this the one that you picked when I sent you the choices? Yeah, I had read it before, but I don't remember when. Obviously, when I was a child, I probably. Read it. And I'm a recent father, so I was like, I like the idea of like going back and revisiting things I, you know, enjoyed or remember somewhat enjoying as a child, and then thinking of it through the framework of having a daughter myself, and just having like thinking of how she's going to be reading things, and like you know, 40 years from now or whatever, be like, oh, I remember reading that. I just think that's so fascinating. So I've been really into that as well, and that's kind of why it stood out because I was like, oh, I love Roald Dahl books as a kid. And James the Giant Peach is one that I feel like is kind of just in the ether almost, where you're going to remember it by osmosis. But just sitting down and reading it as an adult was something I was really interested in and definitely something I would not have done otherwise. So that was why I picked it. Well, interestingly, your wife, Chris's wife, Case Wickman, is a former SSR guest. She was on episode five about Nancy Drew. So after you listen to this episode, listeners, go back, listen to episode five, and you'll get the whole picture of like the Rose and Wickman family's take on the books that their daughter is going to be reading in the future. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. Yeah, no, I think that's funny. Case is a much, I must say, Case is a much better reader than I am. So I only hope that Luna, uh, my our daughter, takes after Case rather than myself because I am a, a derelict reader at times and I know Case would call me out for that. So I'm 
going to say that right now. But yeah. Well, for what it's worth, I don't think she's going to be reading Nancy Drew based on my conversation no. with Case. So time will tell. No. The next hour will tell if she'll be reading James and the Giant Peach. Yes. yes. I remember reading this. I'm not sure when I read it either. I think I saw the movie first. So the movie came out in 1996, and I would have been about six or seven when it came out. I have a feeling I probably went just because, like, all of my friends were going to see it, and that was the movie to see at the time. I believe I went through, like, a Roald Dahl phase at some point when I was maybe, like, eight or nine when I just, like, read through all of them, and I would imagine that that's about when I read James and the Giant Peach. But at that point, I'd already seen the movie, and the movie is so unique and distinct in its own way. I mean, it's a Tim Burton film. So I think by the time I read the book, the movie had probably embedded itself in my head in a weird way. So um, I just don't have a lot of memories of the book. But interestingly, I didn't know this. um, James and the Giant Peach was Roald Dahl's first kids book. It was published in 1961, which you know, kind of interesting. He'd written a bunch of like short stories for adults before, but this was his first official foray into the world of kidlet. I'm not surprised to hear that because I find, I found so much of it. So like an adult writing, like an adult story that will be for kids, I felt like. And it's just so weird and kind of, I would be like, maybe as a kid, I maybe didn't think it was scary because I think you don't understand certain things in the book. But as an adult, I was like horrified by certain things in it. Um, and I could see that then being like, if he had, if this is his first book for children, I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's super dark. And he is super dark as an author. Like, you know, we read Matilda for the podcast very early on and now James and the Giant Peach. And I remember reading that about him, like when I worked in publishing, that his sort of brand is this like dark, sick sense of humor. And so I get, you know, I get that's part of his shtick, but this seems like a little extreme. Well, yeah, the ants are obviously so abusive. Uh, The aunts, I guess, if I'm going to speak clearly and normally, they are really terrible characters and just so mean-spirited. And then on top of that, that they get just just killed and everyone cheers. I was just really surprised by that because in the movie, that, that does not happen at all. The movie completely changes their character arc. I think they get, like, they're at the end of the movie. They're in New York City and they kind of get, like, a a different kind of comeuppance, definitely like a punishment, I feel like. I haven't seen the movie in a long time, but they do not get flattened by the peach and just killed, and everybody does not just cheer. And I was like, that's pretty messed up. And I'm like, as a kid, I guess, would you really realize what happened there? I I don't know. I'm like, would I realize that, or do you not really take that seriously, the mortality of just murdering these abusive ants? Uh, I just was like kind of really taken aback by that. I was thinking the same thing and like I was reflecting back on reading books like this when I was a kid and watching movies that had a similar kind of like dark, twisted sense of humor sort of tone and I think like as a kid and this is probably going to make me sound like a terrible, dark, evil child but as a kid I think a lot of this stuff reads as funny. Yeah, I think and it's meant, I think in the book it's played as funny, right? Like they're all cheering like all the bugs which we should also get to obviously i'm sure we will um that that is just crazy ass nonsense the bugs uh, i was totally freaked out by that but the 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 aunts uh they just are they everybody cheers and it's like a really empowering moment and they are so terrible and abusive that it's like an interesting way to i guess if i, I was trying to think of it as a kid like you know presentation of bullies in in literature and especially kids literature a lot of that stuff in the beginning i said this the case and she scolded me because she's like not every not harry potter did not rip off every other children's book but it really reminded me of like the dursleys a lot in the beginning right and how you have this like very lonely like toe-headed boy uh who is just being abused by these second the second family who doesn't even want him because his real family or his real parents are killed in a horrible accident so it did remind me a lot of harry potter in the beginning and i think 
you know, whereas in Harry Potter, the Dursleys don't have that kind of comeuppance and a lot of it is played a lot more goofily and kind of like, you know, they're terrible characters and they're mean, but then you also have like the, the backstories and stuff. I'm like, okay, I kind of see that here. It just is like, they're terrible, full stop. There's no redemption or any even attempt at that. And they're just dead. And I guess it's interesting to think of them as like these terrible bullies. And if you're a kid, like how do you deal with bullies based on this book? You just wait for them to get murdered. Right. Uh, I don't know if it's the best message. Yeah, you, like, climb aboard a peach and, like, hope that said peach then rolls over the bullies. (laughs) I mean, just so bad. So, yeah, I was not surprised. I I didn't remember seeing the movie, but I was not surprised that that was uh, obviously changed uh, in the movie, (laughs) that they didn't do that. Well, Well, and, you know, we'll get into the plot momentarily because there's obviously a lot here. But just sort of on, like, a big picture level, I was thinking a lot about how, like, Roald Dahl tackles a lot of big issues in this book you know you mentioned child abuse there's death there's abandonment there's loneliness like a lot of really scary sad things and I don't think it's that children's authors of today aren't diving into those subjects because they obviously are I think what's so interesting though is the difference in tone and obviously Roald Dahl is is a special case in that he's just kind of like this zany character who has like a very bizarre way of writing things and very a very signature way of writing things that has made him very successful but I just think it would be interesting and this is something I'm obviously always doing as part of this podcast to just like kind of trace the tone that's used to address some of these topics over time it's just so flippant in this book um one of the lines that i highlighted with respect to the ants early on in the book before james is sort of like rescued by this crew of bugs on a peach and gets to kill them and run away is one of the ants says beat him and then later on she goes i'll I'll beat you later on in the day when i'm not so hot which is just such i mean First of all, the phrase beat him is, I don't, I don't think that's something that we would read or see in a book intended for like middle graders today. Cause that's just, it puts such a fine point on it. And then to follow it up with this line about like, oh no, I'll just do it when I'm not so hot. I'll get to you later and you're beating when I feel like it. It's such a bizarre tone. And I don't think that an author would be able to get away with that today. I would, I agree with that. I also think it's just, it's a different time, right? So this was published in 1961. I mean, I think the cavalier attitude towards beatings like that was maybe a little more baked in, right? Like you have probably like a lot more kids experiencing like spankings and stuff like that that you would not now. So I wonder if you were a kid in 61 reading this, would that just be like, "Uh uh-huh, sure, and like kind of gloss over. But now I'm like, I would imagine a large majority of, I would hope also, a large, large, large majority of kids would just not even comprehend that that's a possibility, right? Like you're not going to be beaten by a family member you know, God forbid. Uh, so I just was like, really kind of, I think you're right. Like that is something you would not ever see now. I would be curious to see how other, think of how other parents would even respond to questions. I was trying to think of that when I was reading it. Like if I read this to Luna and she was like 10 years old or something, which I think like my first Raw Dog book was, I think Matilda, honestly, which was published in 1988. I remember having a hardcover of it and was so excited by it because it was like, you know, this new thing. And I re- I guess I was in, I was 10. So it must've been in like fourth grade or fifth grade, I guess at the time. And and I remember being so super proud of having it in the hardcover and like just loved reading it and we read it for the, my class and stuff. And I'm like, as Luna is a 10 year old, would she like even understand that phrase? Like, it just is weird to me to think about like, how would she react to that portion of it? Whereas maybe even in 1988, I was like, okay, you know, I was 
unfortunately not ever abused. Uh, but I'm like, you know, would I, did it didn't really maybe even occur to me that that was a problem. Whereas now I'm like, holy cow, that's crazy. And I imagine Luna would also think that's nuts or not even comprehend it. Thankfully for her. So, but this book has, has had its share of challengers. I mean, it's beloved by many, but it's also been highly controversial. Um, I found in my research that between 1990 and 1999, it was number 50 on the list of the most challenged books in schools, and that's according to the American Library Association. So that's pretty significant, in addition to, obviously, these like super dark themes of child abuse and loneliness and abandonment that we've mentioned so far. There's also these like supposed sort of sensual, sexual themes and undertones. I read somewhere that a town in Wisconsin banned it simply because of a moment where like the spider licks her lips in a suggestive way and that was their reasoning so to me of all the things you could ban this book for that seems a little crazy but maybe one more drop in the bucket and not just put this city in wisconsin over the edge (laughs) yeah maybe it's interesting though i think the way it handles loneliness i think is actually really interesting and i was struck by that and also like struck by the the personalities of the bugs uh, and how they were very complex, I felt, like representations of people you would meet. For me, I was like, man, I really related to the earthworm because I am often like, everything is terrible. And then everything, even when you're like, it's not bad, well, what about this other terrible thing that can happen? And I believe that was the earthworm, right? Not the entity. Yeah, that, uh, I kept getting them confused too. That was the earthworm though. So I really related to the earthworm's terrible outlook on life often. And I could hear myself being like, you know, he's always like, oh, we're doomed. And it reminded me of me being on a plane because anytime I'm like on a plane, I get like scared and I'm like, oh, with there's turbulence, oh, we're doomed. And then, oh, what is, it's just a cascade of terrible things. So I was like really struck by that, having all the animals have, or the insects, excuse me, have like these personalities. And then baking in that with the loneliness of the main character, which I thought was really interesting because he's only, I guess he is, how old is James in the book? I think nine or ten, right? Is he's that right? seven, or actually, which shocked seven. me. Yeah, according to my research, research, um, he's meant to be seven. So the idea is that he was four when his parents were right. killed by the rhinoceros, of course. And then all Obviously. of this is happening when he's seven. So he's little. So he's super little. And having a seven-year-old, like, confront the notions of loneliness, which I was, like, really struck by. And I was like, that's an interesting thing to, like, teach kids about loneliness and then also maybe about like being able to find strength in a group of friends and stuff like that I like really took to that in a nice way um and I thought the way the book wraps up and stuff is very sweet even though it has that like very hilarious it felt like an animal house epilogue at the end where it's like and here's what happened to all the characters (laughs) but it was like very much interesting to me how it like showed that and how like oh you know you could find even if you lose something and you're dealing with grief, which, again, very complex issues for a 7-year-old or a 10-year-old or whoever's going to be reading this as a kid, there are ways to find other, you know, solace and support elsewhere. So I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if a kid would actually understand that, certainly on, like, a, you know, conversational level, but I think maybe through osmosis or just subconsciously they would. I think so, too, and I, I think it's interesting to talk about his age because as an adult, I find that he reads very old for his age, and I think part of that, like, when you're a kid, obviously, like, authors kind of want characters to be aspirational, so a seven-year-old doesn't want to read about a seven-year-old that actually talks and interacts the way that they do, but they want to read about a seven-year-old that fights crime or, like, has adventures, and so I think that's how I read it as a kid. But as an adult, I'm like, wow, this kid has seen some things and he has had to grow up really fast. So I think that leads us pretty well into like setting the stage for this adventure. And as we mentioned briefly, when James 
was four, his parents were killed by a wild rhinoceros, which happens often, you know, in London. It's such a common thing. Yeah, in the city, it happens fairly frequently. But it's this very sad transition for him because the author sets up his life in the beginning to be so beautiful and idyllic. They live in this like little house on the seashore and it's just James and his two parents. And I have this vague memory of the movie. I think his parents were like very attractive. Am I making that up? I don't know. I thought so too. But again, I was like, a lot of this reminded me of Harry Potter. So I was like, am I just melting everything together? Yeah, I feel like I have this memory of sort of like this washed out like image of his like mother who's like beautiful and like singing to him or something I, I wish I could fact check myself on this immediately but I can't so that's what I pictured while I was reading but I will share this one passage that I highlighted from the first few pages of the book and the author is talking about how like obviously sucks for the parents to be killed by the rhinoceros but really it's worse for James and here's what he said but in the long run it was far nastier for James than it was for them their troubles were dead and gone in 35 seconds flat poor James on the other hand was still very much alive and all at once he found himself alone and frightened in a vast unfriendly world the lovely house by the seaside had to be sold immediately and the little boy carrying nothing but a small suitcase containing a pair of pajamas and a toothbrush was sent away to live with his two aunts man that is so sad just like crushingly sad and it's interesting thinking again when you read that passage and just thinking of how the book starts and and again trying to think of it from the perspective of a child it is like uh here's what the real world is like kid type thing whether or not your parents die that would be obviously is a terrible worst case scenario but like just in general I think of that again with Luna a lot where I'm just like we love her so much obviously and like like the idea of her going out into the world and knowing what I know about the world just in general and just being you know hard and cynic now as an older man it's just like heartbreaking for me to think that she's gonna have to be removed from this idyllic life that she has as a baby and then as like a little as she gets older and then thrown into this adult garbage world that we live in now uh is just very sad that i think is what he's trying to do there i would say and it's just super sad just hearing about and thinking about as an adult but as a kid Again, I don't know what you would think. Maybe you're just like, oh, yeah, that does suck. Poor James. But he gets to hang out with all these bugs. It's awesome. Well, I also think there's such, like, a trope in kids' literature and kids' movies about orphans and, like, being abandoned and it being you against the world and, like, a less-than-ideal situation. And so I think as a kid, maybe you sort of get conditioned to, like, read and listen and watch stories like this. And so you're like, oh, okay, he's an orphan now. Got it. Like, What's he going to do? A lot of kids' books do do that. And a lot of kids' movies just get rid of the parents so the kids can go on an adventure and, like, make the kids feel more empowered, I guess. Yeah, so it's like we have to get this sort of dramatic event out of the way to create a situation where he can then, like, stand on his own two feet. And Roald Dahl decided to do it with Rhinoceros because he's Roald Dahl and that's what he does. The whole thing really broke my heart, too. The fact that he had no friends and, like, never got to meet any kids. There was a moment a few chapters later after the peach starts to grow to ginormous proportions and the ants sell tickets for people to come see the peach, which... As much as I hate the ants, I loved that scene. I thought that was so funny. And that was probably one of my favorite parts of the book, just in terms of like the whimsy and the imagination of it. He has this moment where like they've locked him inside because they don't want him to be in the way. And he's like, can you please let me down? Like I've, I haven't met kids in years and years and there's so many of them out there. And like, I just want to interact with some people my own age. And that broke my fucking heart. So sad. It's just so sad. Like, it's just like, oh, this poor kid, just all he wants to do is see another kid. That's why the ending actually kind of choked me up. And I mean, obviously we'll get to it, but I'm just like, the way that kind of wraps up 
uh, and the way he does wrap it up in a really sweet way. I was like really struck by that. And it, it kind of choked me up a little because it's just like, wow, this kid's so sad and all he wants, it's not even like he's like, oh, I wish my, I mean, obviously he wishes mom and dad were back, but now he's just like, I'll literally take anyone who is my size and my age or even younger. doesn't matter. Just uh, let me have a little kid who I could be friends with, basically. Someone will talk to me. You're right, though. He, like, never talks about his mom and dad again, I don't I don't think. No, I don't think so either. I mean, I think they maybe mention it one other time, but it's mostly like, hey, I just am alone. And then it, once it gets into the plot machinations and the journey, there's really no time for anything. It kind of just cascades from one catastrophe to another that they have to, like, problem-solve their way out of. Well, and I think his loneliness and just generally, like, desperation for human interaction is probably why he's so willing to, like, talk to that creepy little man who appears in his yard to give him the green sparkly crocodile tongues I mean obviously he has to do that in order for the plot to move along and so when I say things like that sometimes I catch myself because I'm like no he did that because the author wanted him to but in my head I'm like no he did that because he was lonely yeah and he was like oh somebody else who wants to talk to me there's also a funny part right after that where the aunt says something crazy where she it just stuck out to me because she's like he probably broke his leg or broke his back did she mention like a broken back when he doesn't come home and I was just like, what? Like, why would you go to Broken Back of all things? Like, I don't know. I just was so, it just really threw me off. Like, what is this? Right. So maybe weird. like, a, maybe can we start with a wrist? Maybe? Or like I a finger? Like you fell. I don't know. Right to Broken Back. Just done. Like, oh boy, these ants are terrible. The worst possible scenario. So yeah, this like creepy little man appears in the yard. I think James is out doing some kind of chore, maybe chopping wood, some form of heavy labor that he shouldn't be doing. That his ants are making him do as usual. And this guy approaches him. Him and is not just talking to him, but is also like, here, take these things and eat them with, you know, put them in water and drink them. And of course, in 2018, I'm like, stranger danger, anyone? Like, hello? Even as a kid, I'm sure I was like, why would you talk to him? This is a stranger and he wants you to eat something. But, you know, and this is like a really dark thing to say, but James doesn't really have anything to lose. Right. That's a really good point. He's like, I'll do that. Like, it's like his life is pretty terrible at that point. So yeah, he's going to listen to this tiny strange man with his crocodile tongue and maybe he is red jack and the beanstalk at some point in his life and it's like i'll take the roll i'll roll the dice you know who knows yeah and he makes a lot of promises he's like your life will be magical and wonderful you'll never be unhappy ever again and that's kind of what gets james because he's obviously perpetually unhappy in his life now i'm surprised that wasn't what got it banned because you could argue that this guy's the drug pusher like uh, tina fey and mean girl and he's giving him some kind of pills and stuff and, and James is like oh I'm gonna, I'm gonna be super happy I don't have to worry about anything I mean I guess that's one reading but I guess Wisconsin didn't get there they were only worried about the, the sex spider yeah the sex spider is clearly more important but it's I mean I really want to know more about Roald Dahl and I could have done more research but he had a wild imagination that I you know I sort of have a sneaking suspicion may have been influenced by perhaps some substances I, it seems certainly this book i would argue is definitely full of uh it is uh, very substance heavy i would argue yeah so maybe the green crocodile tongues are like a very subtle nod to that but it's not reading that subtle to me no not very subtle at all so like classic james is running home and like <laughs> spills these magical crocodile tongues all over the base of a peach tree. Like, the kid can't catch a break, but also, it's so endearing. I love a clumsy kid who just, like, can't help but screw things up. It reminded me of, he's just so excited that he fell, basically. Like, oh, this is the greatest day of my life, and then just flat. And then all these crocodile tongues go all over the yard, and as we find out later, they affect a lot of other things in the yard besides the peach. Yeah, and there had never been another peach 
on this peach tree. It's described as just like completely dead. And the next day they wake up and there's like a little peach. I was reading that the whole book was um, inspired by a tree in Roald Dahl's yard. I guess he had a cherry tree in his yard. And at one point he found himself questioning like, why would a cherry stop growing? Like, why should it stop at a certain size? Why is this a size that a cherry is supposed to be? And originally the book was actually like James and the Giant Cherry. No, I agree. And I guess they went through like a bunch of different fruit options. And Roald Dahl decided on the peach because he thought it was like the most sensual and like soft, which is a whole other conversation to be had. No wonder Wisconsin's banned this. Yeah, but it does have a better sound as a title. So like maybe we just leave it. It's a great title. Great title. We don't need to worry about it. It's not like he doesn't need to turn it to call me by your name or anything. It is fine. We got it. Well, and he's not here to defend himself. So let's just say James and the Giant Peach. It sounds good. Great name. Right. The peach is what's growing on the tree and it just starts to grow and grow and grow and grow until the ants are freaking out and seeing it as a cash cow because obviously that's what they would do. They are selfish mean ants. I love that scene, the whole scene where it's getting bigger and bigger. I thought that was so well uh, paced and like, just I just was like super into that and like them being like, oh my God, it's so much bigger and just how it kept growing and growing is really illustrative in the in his writing. I feel like I was, it just was like really a fun section and this whole part here, even with the terrible ants is like, great i was like all in on this and like throw this giant peach and let's sell tickets sure great idea that's like a home run sounds like a fun or like a little bit of we bought a zoo type stuff i was just like very excited yeah you just so, picture so. this huge carnival and they're all like eating cotton candy and snow cones and being like hey check out this peach yeah i mean what a fun thing to do i guess right i'm like was it such a boring time that just going to see a giant i guess you know if i was on like you know they have like the biggest rubber band ball in the world or whatever right like it's like sure i'm in i guess why not it's the kind of thing like, I feel like your parents would make you go to, and you're like, oh, this is what I'm doing on my Saturday. Okay, mom, that sounds awesome. And then you get there, and you're like, all right, well, this is kind of cool. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's cool. And I guess now it'll be for the gram, so everybody be, like, taking pics and stuff. Oh, so many grams of the giant peach. Do oh. it for the gram. So skip ahead. James is out yeah. doing more manual labor. He's, like, taking out the trash or some <laughs> other, like, stupid task that his ants are 100% capable of doing. And, oh, he has to do it at nighttime, like, under the cover of darkness. He's not allowed out to take out the trash or, like, pick up the trash until it's dark outside, which is just, they're, yeah. they're the worst. That really took a turn where I felt like it was, like, almost like a, a serial killer, like a David Fincher-y type thing where I was like, they're not even letting him out during the day. It's just like, get out of your cage. Go do something in the yard. It's nightfall. We don't want to even look at you, and you better come back or whatever. I'm just like, oh, God, they're terrible. Yeah, Harry Potter, I don't think, had it even quite this bad. Boy, Harry Potter would read this and be like, oh, man, that kid's so sad. Yeah, he'd be like, the Dursleys are so nice. It's so nice they let me live here. I have a closet all to myself. Yeah. The best. make them do that many chores. But the moment that James actually, like, goes into the peach... I was struck again by, like, how brilliant Roald Dahl is. Again, crazy and dark and really, really weird, but so smart and so imaginative. Just this idea that, like, James saw this tunnel and then, like, crawls into a giant peach. And then there's this scene where he, like, hits the pit of the peach. And he's like, is this a door? Like, what is this? And he walks into this room that's inhabited by these giant human-sized bugs. And I think the funny thing about bugs, like, I mean, I guess it's different for all kids because some kids are really into bugs. But as a kid, I was so not into bugs. And I think you probably fall on one side or the other as a little kid. Like, you either are fascinated by them and are out collecting them or you are completely freaked out by them. And so it's kind of like this polar, it's maybe like a risk to like make your main characters bugs with little kids. I was horrified by the bugs. So first of all, I hate bugs and I definitely am like 
heaving bugs all the time and i definitely have nightmares where like i'm either having to kill a bug or they're crawling so i'm like way anti-bug just firmly anti-bug the idea of people-sized bugs is just so fucking horrifying and i can't believe that it's in a kid's book and they're not bugs like a bug's life that was the thing that really threw me it's not like look at this cute animated bug or you know it's like not a pixar bug it is a full fucking david cronenberg bug that's all i kept thinking where i was like i've seen the fly i know what these fucking bugs look like and now there's hundred there's like 10 of them and they're all different and they're all terrible a grasshopper a centipede an earthworm right a spider ladybug uh, ladybug a glowworm and a silkworm yeah which is that right sound i think the silkworm sounds like the most disgusting visually a lot of a lot of fucking worms a lot of legs yeah <laughs> most of this part I was just like heaving so much I can't even and I'm like I guess if you're a kid you wouldn't care I don't know I mean there are kids who love bugs right you especially if you're not like I don't know when I became so hung up on gross things right but I'm like I've definitely lost a lot of that not to go back to having a daughter but I've definitely lost a lot of that with the baby because you just deal with so much gross stuff on a daily basis, it just doesn't even matter, right? Like, so not just, like, bodily fluids, but just, like, if she's, like, eating gross, the amount of gross food that she eats or that she turns into gross food. She loves bread, <laughs> and she'll eat the bread, but she doesn't eat it like a, she just sucks on it, and then you have wet bread, and then she'll, like, slap it on your face. And it's like, that's disgusting, but I love it. So I'm like, I've definitely gained a little more back, and I guess as a kid, I was not nearly as heaving all these things. So maybe I was like, oh, bugs are cool, but I don't know. These are like real bugs. They're not cartoon bugs. And that was just like terrifying. And James, God bless him, is just like, fuck yeah, I love you guys. Like, you guys seem cool. Look at that over there. It's a bug and he's talking to me. No problem. Yeah, uh, he like immediately kinda, like, is like down with it. Totally down. And they are just like, oh, he gets a little scared because they're like hungry. And he's like, oh, no, they're going to eat me. And then they all have a great laugh that he's not going to get eaten by these giant fucking bugs. And I'm like, why are we laughing with giant bugs, James? Get out of there. Uh, what is happening? <laughs> so crazy. Uh, but sure. So the bugs are there. And, uh, you know, they're going to eat. They love him. They've been waiting for James. He is like their bug god basically yeah I didn't really get that part like I, I maybe they were just like waiting for a human or like I I guess they were just stuck like on the tree so they didn't really know what they were waiting for they just needed they were just like eventually something is going to happen probably I guess but it also seemed like they knew him because they knew they had lived in the backyard uh-huh. so it's possible I guess right that they had like lived there and seen him because later the spider tells another terribly sad story oh, about God. her grandmother dying <laughs> just so bad uh and like she's like oh we've been like they made it sound like they've all been living in the backyard so they know james is a cool guy and the ants are terrible so they're like oh james is gonna come find us and save the day basically i guess that's what i was took it as but still fucked up that they're always talking bugs that's my big takeaway from this that makes it so much worse that they like i guess i hadn't thought about this that they were kind of like creeping on him i guess they lived there so it wasn't creepy but i think that makes it worse that they were like oh like we know james because we've been in this yard and we know he's nice so like eventually he'll come save us that's really creepy i don't like that like i don't like this at all too many bugs too (laughs) many bugs and like to your point about the spider i feel like from this point on the book was sort of just this like long cautionary tale about like stop killing spiders it definitely becomes that, and you kind of get, like, you know, obviously, so the spider tells a story about her grandmother, I believe, who gets stuck in the paint on the ceiling of the aunt's house. Yeah, and there's another one right? of her relatives, I think, that got flushed. Like, there were a few 
of her relatives. Really, really bad. It was bad. And I think like the aunt maybe tried to kill this particular spider one time. Like there's just a lot of very clear statements about like, don't kill spiders. I want to kill the spider. I don't want to like, I'm not a, I'm not a like, let's put them a piece of paper under a cup and like release them into the wild. I'm like scared slap and hopefully it's gone. Chris, do you want to kill this spider? And look beyond, there's no judgment, but you've gotten to know this spider over the course of these 146 pages. I just want to know it's fine either way. I don't want to because this spider is a giant fucking spider that could probably eat me. So it reminded me of the spider from Lord of the Rings. That's what I kept picturing. I forget what that spider is called, uh, but uh, it just that's what I kept picturing, this giant monster spider. And I was like, I can't even kill this unless I have like a Frodo knife or whatever it is. I was just like, I'm going to like, I'll respect this spider and like kind of like move on. But when they're little, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill it. I'm just going to come out and say, not saving spiders, sorry. All right, GTFO spiders. We're not interested. <laughs> Got it. Understood. Oh, man. Chris yeah. takes a stand on spiders, SSR. Yeah, that's my hot take. Yeah. Here we are. Um, So they all have this, like, kind of, it feels like a reunion because, like you said, they're all just like, hey, like, we already know each other. They all get together. It seems like they're going to be pals. James is just happy to have creatures that are willing to interact with him and not make him do chores. We sort of mentioned this earlier, but then something very weird happens because one of the worms, and it's very hard to keep track of all of the worms, but one of the worms, or maybe it's the centipede, I don't know, somebody chews the peach off the tree so that the peach can then like be free. And there's this like very descriptive moment where like the ants are sort of below the tree and James and all of the bugs can feel like the two bumps of the ants being run over by the peach. And then it's like, oh, boom, they're dead. And then uh, they all cheer. And it's just like really screwed. And that part is super screwed up because they actually, he revels in their fear. Uh, the ants. They're terrible people. I'm not arguing that they should not have some kind of comeuppance, but he, the writing in that whole scene feels like it's very much like loving and like bloodthirsty to have them suffer and get this comeuppance. And it really feels like fucked up. It's just like incredible. Even for characters I hate, I was just like, man, that sucks. They're so scared and they're like running away from this giant peach and then they just get crushed. And then they don't get to hear it, but then everybody cheers that they're dead. So that part is really disturbing, I think. And if you kind of unpack that, I think that's really bad. But it happens pretty fast, I guess, fast enough that if you're a kid, it just seems silly. And in the way he describes them, like, flattened out, it does feel like a Roadrunner cartoon or something, right? That they are just flattened on the ground and not, like, a mess of, like, blood and bone, basically, which is what it would be, not yeah. to get grosser. Yeah, but it's true. If you picture it as a cartoon you kind of can, like, almost hear all the kids in a movie theater, like, pointing and laughing and being like, oh, yeah, like, look what happened. And I think it's true, like, the way that we interpret things as kids and sort of, like, we picture things as being, like, slapsticky, maybe, and it's it's funny and like a cartoon, like you said, and that makes it feel a lot less dark. But reading it this time, it this was very gratuitous. I mean, I've read now, like, 30 YA and middle grade books in the last six months, and this is probably the most gratuitous darkness that I've read so far. It just feels really mean. I mean, it's like base mean. Like they're mean characters, and I could see like why he wanted to like give them that kind of like death. But it just is so mean spirited uh, that it was kind of a turn off, and like again, completely fucked up. And I'm like, I don't know. There's no way that would fly in a book today. This, if this was like released today, this would be cut out they would do something else or they would like tone it down. I think there's no way that 
in 2018 in a kid's book that this kind of shit would happen, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the hallmarks of Roald Dahl is that characters always get what they deserve in his books. Like, we talked about this a lot in the episode about Matilda, where, like, every adult character in particular got what they deserved. Like, Matilda's parents were run out of town, and Miss Honey, who is, like, the perfect angel of the book, comes into all this money and gets to live in a beautiful house and have everything she wants and and the list goes on of all the other characters that get what they deserve the same thing happens in charlie and the chocolate factory all of the characters who are mean get punished so i think this is definitely his thing but it's almost like this is his first book and he's like i'm gonna go for it and i'm gonna be the guy that just like runs over the bad guys with a fucking peach and that's just the way i'm gonna do it i could see that i i'm all for comeuppance and i love the idea even though that has been proven false so many times in our lives and so many times last year that bad people get to come up and they deserve. I'm all for that. But I just feel like the other punishments are like punishment. So like if this was maybe instead of murdering the two ants, they get like bullied themselves by the giant centipede, right? Or that's kind of like the obvious thing that could have happened. Like one of these bugs is like, Hey, back off asshole. Like you're being mean to James and fuck yourself and don't do that again. Or I'm going to bite your head off. And they're like, Oh, we're so scared. And we run away. Right. That's kind of like the, obvious come up in here for them and that they're just dead <laughs> it's just so fucked I, i'm just like it is crazy to me so yeah that is uh that is definitely a tough part to get through and then they kind of just begin this series of adventures antics that we can go through you know kind of kind of briefly i think it's more about like what we learn from them as it is in most children's books first they end up in the ocean they roll all the way down this long hill and they fall over these cliffs, which is obviously like a very harrowing moment where you're not sure if they're going to die when they hit the water. And of course they don't because it's only page like 40. Um, (laughs) And then there are sharks because we're in the ocean and it's a kid's book and there have to be sharks. And James all of a sudden proves himself to be so resourceful and smart, especially now knowing that he's only seven years old. Like he's a genius. The bugs are all freaking out. Like, what are we going to do? The sharks are going to eat the whole peach. The earthworm in particular, as you mentioned, is like being very, very fatalistic about this whole thing and is like, it's over. We're done. Which the earthworm says at every turn. Um, And James is like, no, it's fine. I got this. We're just going to tie the peach to like a few hundred seagulls and the seagulls are going to lift us out of the water. Because of course. Yeah, just ride around their necks and it's totally fine. And the peach is light enough, apparently, to do that. So that was great. And the sharks have their mouths under their noses, so the peach is fine. You mentioned the shark thing. I got to tell you, I was surprised by the shark being included. I do not read as many middle grade books as you, obviously, and I am by no means an expert, but I was like, man, fucking sharks after they just killed these ants? Like, again, when are these guys going to catch a break? And sharks are super scary. Again, I was like, oh, my God. Like, it couldn't just be like, oh, we're floating and we don't know where we're going or we're getting lost in the current. It was immediately shark, and they're immediately a big danger. So, yeah, I guess I was definitely exposing my earthworm there by being like, what the hell is happening here? <laughs> Aren't we done yet? Can't we just, like, go out to sea and maybe end up in Bermuda or something? I was like, oh, now they'll just get lost in the current maybe, and they'll have to figure out how to get back. I don't know. I just was not expecting sharks and then it's like this moment where you start to realize like oh everybody on this peach has a job so like the silkworm can start spinning silk in whatever way that a silkworm does and the spider can help her and they somehow manage to spin enough rope to like latch all of these seagulls to the peach so that the peach can then be lifted up and like that's kind of a theme throughout which I liked and you know very reminiscent of so many other kids books kids movies with an ensemble cast each person person creature bug on this peach has these first of all these sentences are ridiculous to say i'm having to speak very slowly because i'm like each bug on this 
peach. It's very confusing. Yeah. Um, it's but bizarre. It's bizarre. But each bug on this peach has a role to play. Like, the silkworm can spin silk, and the centipede is, like, biting things, and the earthworm, I think, is being used as bait, and there's the glowworm yeah. who's, like, providing light for everybody. So everybody can, like, participate, and James is sort of, like, the project manager and, like, telling everybody what to do. A couple of things here. A... Did you realize centipedes can bite things? Does that make centipedes more fucked up or less now for you when you see them walking around? Like, do they have enough? They have bait. What do they have? Like little teeth in there? That was that. That's too much. Well, to be honest, like I don't think about centipedes that much. But now that you've posed the question, I think it makes me. I guess. <laughs> hmm, really good question. Um, I think it makes me more freaked out by them. I agree wholeheartedly. And then second of all, what are the logistics of the peach? Meaning. Did they have some kind of, like, deck or something on the top? Or are they just all in the pit during all this stuff? Like, how did you think that was working? I was picturing, like, a boat a little. And that they had, like, a little, like, nest on top that they were all hanging out in. Or they were just on the peach's top, basically. I like, think they were think? just balancing, like, directly on the fruit. And that is, that is really impressive. Especially for a seven-year-old and a bunch of human-sized bugs. So They have good core strength, A, and the peach they is really, really big. Do. And the, it just has, like, a very flat top and then immediately slopes around as a peach, you know? Right. It's a perfectly yeah. okay, shaped peach sense. for this kind of a mission. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah, so now they're getting away on the seagulls. Great. Sharks are fine. No one's mad anymore. No sharks. Right. Now they're just flying through the sky. Right. Totally fine on a peach. So there's just, there's a lot of things, but one of the things that I, I really appreciate about this book was the pacing. It was very fast. You went from one adventure to the other. And I think in a lot of middle grade and YA books, you're weighed down by so much conversation, which I do like in a lot of situations. But I think in this book, if it had been weighed down between all of these weird, fantastical adventures, I don't know that I would have made it through as easily just because this, there was such great momentum to like each adventure that they had to go through in each challenge that they had to overcome. And I, I didn't really have time to stop and be like, is this weird? Like, should I keep reading this? It just, it really like kept me in the story really well. Yeah. I, like I mentioned earlier, I'm not the most, I'm not the greatest reader, unfortunately, but, and I was like reading this and I was blowing, I was reading on my Kindle app on my phone and I was like blowing through it. And I was like looking and I was surprised at how fast the percentages were like going up. It is like the peach rolling downhill the entire book, basically, right? It's just like they just go from one adventure to the next. And there's really no time for like exposition or just like mourning or anything. It's just like, okay, we did that. Now what's the next problem to solve? Which I liked as an adult and I think would play really well for kids too. So the next thing they have to deal with is these really, really creepy beings called the quote-unquote cloud men. Just another terrifying, super screwed up thing. They sound like they're like a Yeti. Yeah. That was what I imagined, right? Or whatever, like the abominable snowman type thing. Like that is like what I was picturing. Yeah, at first it seemed kind of cool because the setup is that it's like these sort of like ghostly figures that control the weather. So they're like kind of rolling up snowballs and like throwing hail and painting rainbows. Like in theory, it's kind of a cool device from like a fantasy book perspective. I liked that. It seemed so creative. But then some really scary things happen where like there was one cloud man that is like trying to get on the peach and they pelt the peach with hail because they're annoyed that the peach is flying too close and then they have to fight off one of the cloud men and like cut him off the peach because he's attached to one of the ropes that the seagull was flying on. Like there's very scary imagery about him like trying to claw mm -hmm. his way up that I think would 
have kept me up for many nights as a kid and probably did. I was, it reminded me also of like, uh, I think it's called uh, At the Mountain of Madness or what is that? It's a, a Lovecraft book, I think. But it just is about like terrifying beings that are at the top of the world, basically. And that's what this felt like. And I think as a kid, the action in this part is really fun, right? Or it's at least cool. And like, there is a lot happening. But I do think I'd be scared of like that guy just jumping on the, the peach and like growling at them with teeth and hair, basically, or whatever they're made of. It's just, and I just love that the idea that this is his first children's book and the best he can come up with is Cloud Men. Just like, fuck it. That's what they are. No problem. I'm no not names give them for them. Name. No, nah, it's fine. They're Cloud Men. That's it. It's very descriptive. I get it right away. If I was a publisher, I'd be like, good, sold. Cloud Men. I feel like this scene is probably the reason that Tim Burton like wanted to produce this movie. He's like, oh, I can do such cool shit with these Cloud Men. Well, the way they move too is also like Jack Skeltington, right? Like that kind of like I pictured the, like the long legs and like the kind of like pop, 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 moving. That I'm moving with my hands. No one can see this, but like kind of like you know like that like weird like the way he walks in Nightmare Before Christmas, similar to this here. Which just makes I, it so much worse. This whole thing is crazy. I love the the conceit of like there being some crazy monsters or whatever up in the sky controlling the weather and everything we see. I think as a kid that would be really fun and cool because you're like not sure how that works mm-hmm. right like at, at all so i would be like very interested in that but again it gets pretty scary here again I, a lot of this book is scary i think for kids he's seven but i mean i think you'd have to be like i guess kids read it probably at younger but i mean probably nine or ten maybe i don't know what do you think would be appropriate for some of this stuff here well i have a friend who's a second grade teacher and she said that her students read it recently so um, how old is second grade like i think eight Okay, so I can I can see eight. I mean, like my friend, I have friends who have you know eight, nine year olds, and I think they could probably get away with it. They've seen like Star Wars, right, or stuff like that. So it's like they'll probably be able to handle this, but it does feel like pretty intense. Yeah, it definitely feels like the stuff of nightmares. And the thing that's frustrating about that is like there were parts of that whole cloud men scene that were so tame and like kind of sweet, like the idea that there were these giant drums that were producing the thunder. And again, like the cloud men were painting all of the colors onto a shape that is, you know, an arc. And so the idea that that would then become a rainbow, there are a lot of like really cool, creative PG parts of that, but it's just ruined by these creepy ass cloud men. I feel like that's also a conceit in kid stuff or just in movies in general, where it's like you have a group coming on to some bizarre occurrence like cloud men or whatever. And it looked very tame and then they see them, and then it all turns on them really quick. That's always scary. It kind of, like, reminds me of Ghostbusters when, like, the in the very beginning when the librarian ghost is, like, just chilling and, like, doing her stuff. And then, like, she kind of sees them and is just like, nope, I'm going to scare the hell out of you. And that always scared me so much as a kid because it's, like, that kind of thing where you're like, oh, maybe this is going to be okay. And then it's, no, it's not. It's terrible. It's way worse than you thought. And now you're in trouble. So, like, that always was, like, freaky for me as a kid. Yeah, lulling you into fall, into a false sense of security yeah, and then attacking. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's what these guys do. So our ragtag team obviously fights off the cloud men. And the ending I particularly enjoyed and was also freaked out by. And I think part of it is that I'm a New Yorker. And so I think we should talk about that briefly. So the ending is that, you know, they decide it's, like, time to get down. The peach has been damaged. They're going to start to cut the strings and, like, 
you know, let the peach gently descend to the earth and they begin to land and they see these skyscrapers. And so it occurs to them that they're not in England anymore. They've crossed the Atlantic Ocean and now they're in New York and they are descending over New York City. And, you know, in 2018, some of the language that Roald Dahl uses about this is just a little too real because the New Yorkers think that it's a giant bomb. And so there's one line that's like, the alarm was sounded and the word went out that the biggest bomb in the history of the world was hovering over New York City and that any moment it might go off. And this was written in 1961 before so many of the terrible things that have happened in terms of terrorism happened. And so Roald Dahl obviously wasn't aware of some of the things that were going to happen, but this was like, it hit pretty close to home, this particular scene for me. Yeah, I was uh, pretty freaked out as well. I think I'm thinking about it, like after I was reading it, I was thinking about it in the terms of like when it was published and when he wrote it. So it was published in 61, like the Cuban Missile Crisis was 62. So I feel like this is a great time in American culture or just global culture of uh, being very afraid of like nuclear weapons and being very afraid of like what the other what the bad guys are going to do to the good guys or whoever they are in this particular case. And the idea that this could happen at any time, right? There was a very big cloud of uncertainty and fear, I think, in the early 60s with regard to, like, what is the globe? What is going to happen to the globe? So that's, I think, what he was writing it from then. But again, like you said, now it's, like, hard not to think of, like, 9-11. It's hard not to think of all these other terrible things. And just, again, as a kid, I think I'd be terrified of that actually most of all, because that's, again, for me, that's always like a recurring terrible fear is like something like blowing up a city or like washing away a city, right? Like those are like big nightmares for me. And like, this is just pure nightmare fuel, this whole sequence, because it's just like, oh man, there's a giant bomb here. And the way he writes about like the basically like the resignation of people who know they can't get out, mm. right? is like really scary because you do feel like if this were to happen and it was a peach, that would be great. But if it was a bomb, that would be terrible. And all these people would die. Millions of people would die. And like, there'd be no way to get away. Mm-hmm. And that like very fatal feeling is scary. And I think especially as a kid, I would be very scared because I would not want to think about not being able to get away. I don't think as a kid, you really realize mortality that well. I'm sure you do eventually, obviously, but I do think you understand the fear of not being able to get away from something. Yeah, and I think in 1961, although adults may have been very aware of some of these fears, kids, it hadn't like trickled down yet. And so the experience of reading it as a kid then was probably like, oh, hilarious, there's a peach in the sky, that's so cool. I would imagine that kids now, especially kids who are like 10, 11, and 12, who are exposed to the things that kids are exposed to in 2018 on the news and such, like it could be really scary because this is something that feels not so, you know, out of the realm of possibility and definitely living in New York and I'm sure other big cities, everything is suspicious. You know, you see like a package on the subway and you're supposed to report it. So forget a giant peach in the sky. This is scary. And I also really enjoyed the way that they described the president. It felt kind of Trumpy to me. He was like the president who at that moment was having breakfast in his pajamas, quickly pushed away his half finished plate of sugar crisps and starts pressing buttons right and left to summon in his admirals and generals. And I was like, this is Donald Trump. Truly Donald Trump, except Sugar Chris would be replaced by Big Mac, and repl- and the generals he'd be calling would be replaced by Sean Hannity. But otherwise, dead to rights Donald Trump. 
Uh, way to go, Raw Ball, for predicting our terrible president. That was amazing. So the, the peach then, like, lands perfectly on the needle of the Empire State Building. Then, like you mentioned, you know, we talked about this briefly in the beginning, but there's this hilarious epilogue where after, of course, like, the fire department and the police officers are threatening to, like, shoot all the bugs, James neutralizes the situation. They all successfully get off the peach, and they become heroes in the city. And they all kind of, like, find a niche for themselves in the human world, which is very weird, and I'm sure, like, not great for your fears, Chris, of these, like, like giant human-sized bugs just like hanging out in the city. The weirdest for me was the ladybug who goes on to marry the chief A of human the... being. What the fuck just, is that? That is creepy fucking stuff. I was like really like this is horrifying. What and then nobody has a problem with that? I mean like that is bad. And what do they have kids? Do they have hybrid like gross Cronenberg kids? Like, oh God. Yeah, that was all the others. I was like, okay, this is, you know, this makes sense. The centipede goes and works for like a boot factory. Everybody's doing their thing. And then the ladybug marries a human. And I was like, nope, no thanks. James, of course, has this very sweet ending where he goes on to live inside the peach pit in Central Park and like you said he welcomes all of these kids to his house seven days a week and like tells the stories of his adventures and so like you said it kind of comes full circle like he's making the friends as an adult that he wished that he'd had as a kid and he's like having people that want to listen to his stories and play with him and that sort of thing. So a few things here at the end first of all there's a dark undercurrent of like because he was so abused as a kid that he could only relate to kids so he still like wants to be friends with kids mm. at the end right because mm. he is an adult at the end right and they make up he makes a point to write like and he wrote down his stories and that's the book you just read which i was like so hilariously hack and nowadays you'd be like that's such a such a hack thing but like maybe in 1961 it was like whoa mind blown i can't even believe how meta this is like, yeah did they even know what meta was today any editor would be like go back do it again like <laughs> <laughs> give me a new last then, chapter another thing i took just differently in 2018 obviously was how he diffuses the cops from like escalating that situation mm -hmm. i was like that is you know, I just was, like, fascinated by that because obviously that's such a, you know, current issue of, like, of violence by police officers against, like, you know, just not not listening and not talking. So I was, like, the way he diffuses that, I was, like, of course he would diffuse that, but there's zero chance those cops would not be just shooting at all those bugs, I don't think, like, at, at all. Uh, but it was nice that he was able to, like, pump the brakes on it and get them to, like, consider them heroes. It does wrap up really quick. Mm -hmm. Once they get off the beach. One other thing for you. Were you expecting them to go back to normal size? Oh, that's a good question. Um, oddly, no. See, I kind of was, but I guess not. And we actually skipped over one thing, too, at the end, not to just bog down on No, plot, let's do it. They have their victory parade. Oh, uh, yeah. He has all the starving kids, basically, of New York City come out and eat yes. the heat. Like a big group-like thing, and it gets devoured it was hard for me to actually picture what was happening because it's like 10,000 kids came out of the woodwork and like ate the peach. So by the end of the parade that they had, uh, it was gone and it was just the pit that he ends up living in. But I thought that was really an interesting commentary. And I was like, again, like thinking of it, like what he was trying to say, is it like helping, you know, obviously less fortunate people or is it just some stupid thing to get rid of the peach? I don't know where he was coming from on that, but I, I, I was really fascinated by that. Well, I think James is just like a good guy. And so he wants to, like relate to other kids and he wants to make other kids happy in a way that like nobody else ever made him happy so he had something to offer and he yeah. was happy to share too and I mean I think that goes to why like we talked about this earlier but why I would ultimately recommend this book for kids and I think I would let certainly let Luna read this as I think if she was older obviously she's a 
baby now, but like, I think when she's, when she's of the right age, whatever that may be, because I do think there are a lot of really positive lessons in this. And it's like, we mentioned like the teamwork aspect, like James is a really thoughtful character. He's not, he's incredibly nice. And he's always thinking of other people, even while he's being, you know, abused and stuff. Like, I just think he's like a nice avatar for a kid. And like, if you had the values of James as a kid, you'd be pretty solid even if you have to talk to giant fucking bugs while doing it. So I do think there is a lot of value there. And, and the loneliness and those kind of things are very dark and it is very sad. But I think as a kid, you're kind of maybe not going to register how sad it is, but maybe at least understand it a little bit that like he's sad, but he's able to, you know, when he is sad, he's got these friends or he's got support in other places. Like I do think there are, a lot of positive things in this book to take away beyond the crazy dark shit. Yeah, and I liked like the aspect of creative problem solving too. Like one more thing that James had going for him, he was so resourceful and we talked about this a lot, but I just think the way that he thought to like, you know, attach the peach to seagulls and to like, this is terrible for the earthworm, but to like use the earthworm as bait to attract the seagulls, but then to like pull him in. Like he just is really creative and the bugs came to depend on him very quickly because they realized that he knew how to get things done with very limited resources. Totally. Yeah. I, I like that too. I mean, so I do think there's a lot to take away that you know are good. I want to just go back. I, I can't stop thinking about them just being bugs in the human world and that is just really funny and I'm I was looking at the Wikipedia page and it was probably bad also about this just to like get a little refresher on anything I did not remember yeah and the one thing that cracked me up is in the Wikipedia page it says at the end his friends established careers in the human world yeah I like it's that like <laughs> what the hell is this crazy ass <laughs> I mean there's so many that is a really great sense that the friends are bugs that are giant size and the human world would never accept these I just am just it's it blows my mind. Well, and the really use of the word careers, like they establish careers. Uh, he's gonna, the centipede's gonna be a, a, a cobbler. <laughs> also, are they, are they immortal? Like, are they gonna live forever? I don't know. I really expected the mystery magic beans to wear off, but I guess not. You were ready for them to wear off. You're done with the bugs. Yeah, and the ladybugs getting married. What did they have, a band or a DJ, you think, at the ladybugs fireman wedding? Well, I mean, he's in charge of the New York Fire Department, so it was probably a band. Let's be serious about the scale of, of these kinds of festivities. Definitely a band, right, and definitely, like, very much pomp and circumstance. Probably, like, had a fire truck outside. Yep, very classy. Super classy. I wonder which bugs got an invite. You oh, think all the bugs? All, it was a big wedding, so all of them. <laughs> okay, that's fair. They probably had a raw bar at the cocktail hour, too, because this is really <laughs> fancy. Sushi. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah. Lobster claws. <laughs> oh, yum. Delish. I'm so happy for them. Mazel. <laughs> Super positive. It's going to be great. So other than the giant bugs, which I can tell have really scarred you, has yeah. rereading James and the Giant Peach for SSR, has it ruined the book for you or has it sort of like made you appreciate no. it more? Yeah, I really think it made me appreciate it more. I think as a kid, I definitely don't, like I said, I don't really remember reading it. I know I have in the past. And I definitely appreciate it more, I think, as an adult, because I think a lot of the, the complicated stuff we've talked about, really, I appreciate it as an adult, because I'm like, uh, it, is, it is an interesting thing to wrap your head around as an adult, and also thinking of it from a kid's perspective, outside of the bugs, obviously. So I, I was I was positive on this mostly. I, I had fun. And like we said, it actually is quite a good book. I think the pacing is really good. It is an easy read. Um, it's a lot of fun, a lot of adventure, and it kind of cuts out a lot of the exposition and the you know things that bog down maybe some kids' stories. It feels very lean and quick 
and Chris, you know, Raw Dahl stuff is always in the ether and always kind of being readapted. And I know Netflix, I think, is working on like a whole bunch of like Raw Dahl stuff. So I'm like, this will always be in the cultural lexicon. And I think, you know, for a new generation of kids, they are going to be getting it from there. So Luna, get ready. Luna will definitely see this on Netflix or, you know, probably um, and then read it eventually, I would imagine. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I rarely say this, but I'm going to go on record and say that I ruin feels like a strong word. I don't I don't want to say that this book is ruined for me, but I am going to go on record and say that I did not like this as an adult, which I don't say often. And as I mentioned, I have a teacher friend who assigned this to her students and she told me that her kids loved it. And this had been a book that she loved when she was a kid. She was a she's a huge Roald Dahl fan and she was really excited to read it with them and her kids loved it and she does not like it anymore now that she's teaching it. So what do you think it is? Just the, the, the mean spiritedness of the, of the ants is hard to get past, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I just think from the beginning, it, it just felt like a very negative book. I mean, it had moments of positivity, and I liked the moments of creativity. And like you said, it's a good book. There's really imaginative writing, and the plot's really cool, and it moves quickly. But I just think that, like, tonally, it didn't work for me. I think that's fair. And I definitely could see that. But because I'm like the earthworm, I'm like, yeah, fuck everything. It's great. I would be curious. To, like, it's interesting that the kids liked it. But I'm like, I'm not surprised because if you're a nine-year-old kid or a second grader, I guess, which is like eight or nine, there's a lot in this to like, right? Like it is like a big adventure, especially I would imagine like dumb nine-year-old boys are probably like, this is so cool. Got to be friends with Bug, screw you, and like I get to, there, nobody's going to be my parent. I get to do whatever I want. Like that kind of shit I think would probably be cool. Uh, for a kid and you know they'll probably not pay attention to some of the scary things and actually maybe the scary stuff they like like the cloud men yeah i could see like some kids liking that but it is pretty scary i would be i would be terrified yeah of that well at its heart it's an adventure story and i think kids go for that and you know i'm an adult and so like i understand that things really are scary and that the world is terrifying and so maybe i read more into it than i should but yeah i mean i think it's still a fun book i understand why kids like it but This was one that just did not hold up for me. And you know what, listeners? That's okay. It does not always work out. It does not. So, Chris, I know you said you're not like a huge reader or a prolific reader, but I always ask if my guests have read anything recently that they would like to recommend to our listeners. If not, if there's anything else that like you've listened to, seen that you want to recommend, that's cool too. I would recommend, so uh, William Goldman recently died. He was a screenwriter who wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and All the President's Men. And he wrote a bunch of books, including Adventures in the Screen Trade, which is a very popular book about the screenwriting and also his, you know, time in Hollywood making those movies. And then he has another book that he wrote after that. That was a sequel that's uh, called uh, Which Lie Did I Tell? And I've been reading that, and I would recommend both of those books. I've read uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade before, and I was kind of looking through it again after his death. And which lie I tell, they're great. He's a great writer. I find his writing really very conversational. I think a lot of Bill Simmons is a huge fan of his. I think a lot of, like, modern writers kind of, like, learned how to write from him and also, like, copy his style, whether they even know it or not, because his style was so copied by other prominent writers. So if you are like, oh, I like, you know, the writing of somebody who works for The Ringer or New York Mag. Like, all these people have probably either knowingly or unknowingly, like, kind of borrowed 
that style of writing. It's just very conversational, very fun. And especially if you like like Hollywood and insider bullshit like that, like he is, does not care about spilling tea and is very uh, kind of like great. So I would recommend both of those. And then an additional William Goldman thing, if you can find it online. I love this movie. It's Saving Private Ryan by Steven Spielberg. But William Goldman famously wrote an essay that just destroyed Saving Private Ryan from a screenplay level. And it is a fascinating critique of a movie that is very good and beloved. Um, and I think you should like just Google William Goldman Saving Private Ryan and you'll see this essay that he wrote basically just explaining it's almost hard to watch Saving Private Ryan now without, for me, without thinking of that essay, um, even though I still like, like the film. I definitely would say like it will make you think of it differently. So that is my recommendation. Well, I will include links to both of the books you mentioned in the show notes. I will also try to find a link to the essay. I will also include a link to By James and the Giant Peach for listeners who want to read it and see which side they fall on. Finally, I'm going to include a link to Case Wickman's episode so that, again, listeners can get the full picture of the reading habits that <laughs> little Luna is one day going to adopt. Chris, I really appreciate your time. It's been so fun having you on Manual and I appreciate you reading James and the Giant Peach, especially because you're telling me you're not a huge reader. Thank you so much for being on this fantastical journey with us. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I love your show, and I will, I'm so excited to be a guest, so this is great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.